This is the Tech Wars podcast, and uh, we have uh, Michael Millerman here with us, a very special guest, a translator of uh, Russian philosopher uh, Alexander Dugan's work, and also otherwise very interesting philosopher outside of Dugan's work in political theory otherwise. And we're going to start with the assumption that uh, a lot of y'all either know who Alexander Dugan is or can look up, um, you know, his basic background, um, because we, we have the, you know, the authoritative, one of the authoritative scholars on his work, and uh, uh, we're just going to jump right into it. So, uh, Michael, what, uh, how did you get to where you are, even outside of Dugan, in your political thought, in your pedagogy uh, of the subjects that you teach and uh, why you teach them? Well, first, thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Um, I first heard about Dugan when I was an undergraduate studying philosophy at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Um, I was studying, uh, I was refl- I had some time to reflect on what it was about my first philosophy professor that made him so much more outstanding than the other professors I had during the program. And as I did that, I discovered um, a connection to a scholar of the history of political philosophy, some of you may know, Leo Strauss. So he was never explicitly taught to us, but I pieced together that um, my first philosophy professor was a Straussian. So I began getting into Strauss's writings and to his students and eventually started reading um, a journal that was established in Straussian circles called Azur. Um, it was it's called actually the full title is Azur Ideas for the Jewish Nation. Um, and it had some articles about foreign policy and um, political theory. And in that, by the way, if any of you know Yoram Hazoni, he's, he wrote uh, The Virtue of Nationalism most recently, a book much discussed in conservative circles. Um, he was co-founder of this, um, of this journal, Azur. And there I read an article um, about Dugan. That was my first time hearing or reading anything about him. It's called Alexander Dugan, Prophet of the New Russian Empire. And I recommend it as reading. Um, it's, I, I thought it was riveting then. And it also matched some pre-existing interests that I had. So, for example, um, the article said that Dugin had been in some mystical or occult circles in the 80s in Russia. And even before I entered university, I had um, my primary interest was in mysticism. What I most related to was um, to the mystics. And I got a taste of that in my first year of philosophy, but then it sort of fell by the wayside because mystics aren't really taken seriously or discussed much. Um, in those contexts, especially in like analytical um, departments. So when I saw that uh, Strauss, sorry, when I saw that Dugan had a background in mysticism and occultism, and also was pre- he was presented in this article as being something like a philosopher king for Russia, um, and there were other components of uh, the presentation of him in that article, it just was so intriguing to me, you know, that I had to dig in a little bit deeper. So mm-hmm. I, I Googled him and I found out about his fourth political theory idea, I heard him lecture on it, and and it helped me to make sense of some things I was experiencing at the university. Um, So I can tell you later uh, how it did that, but that's basically how I encountered him. And like the broader context, I would say there were two key things. So the first one is that I have an interest, I developed it like in my undergraduate years, an interest in the question of how metaphysics and politics are related. So how do our ideas about metaphysics configure our understanding of political life? Or conversely, how do different ways of understanding politics imply different metaphysical uh, presuppositions? So Dugan came to light in part um, in that context. And then also, like I say, with an interest in, uh, I was studying Plato, so philosopher kings and mystics, and it was the perfect time 
I should say, too, I mean, my family is from the former Soviet Union, so I spoke some Russian growing up in the household. And before I'd ever heard of Dugan, I already had an interest in Russian mystics like Vladimir um, Solovyov. That's how you say it. So Dugan just fit like these three or four different themes perfectly uh, when I first encountered him. And then I ran with it. And I, in a way, I still am running with it. That's very interesting. So um, the reason I actually came upon Dugan is, and probably similar to a lot of like our viewers here, is that uh, he kind of like on internet, you know, image boards, a lot of people post about him. But um, you know, and a lot of people will probably you know go on to then actually do some like legitimate like you know search engine looking up right on these folks. But um, the main thing that was interesting to me was how much he draws on like actual anthropologists post enlightenment and how kind of the style of anthropology that they do is the split in how the enlightenment shaped the way that we do sociology. And so it's always looking back on like primitivist societies, right? Um, in a lot of ways. So not just Strauss, not just Leo Strauss, but I think it's like cloud leak, uh, the, the one that studied the Pensé Salvage, he, he wrote a book on, uh, you know, the differences in language and representation and, and symbolic thought. And uh, there's a lot of other, you know, thinkers on this edge, like, you know, uh, uh, Clifford Geertz. Right. Uh, but even like old, you know, Husserl. Right. A lot of Heideggerian stuff. And like a lot of like, you know, eventual philosophical descendants of Husserl and Heidegger, there's a lot of controversy associated with them because they they have an inherently political belief of how their life is shaped. And it, you know, also because of, you know, real life political associations, right? For example, you know, with Heidegger and, and, uh, you know, Nazism, right? So, uh, right. Um, so if maybe I could even start with that is, is you, you, you mentioned before this is that there's a, there's, there's a larger context around books like Ethnos and Society, uh, it's, I said it's very encyclopedic, but uh, you mentioned there's, there's kind of there's kind of a, f- a larger framing. Obviously, he has other books that are more, I would say, more uh, from an Anglosphere perspective, more upfront political, like you know, mm-hmm. uh, the fourth political theory and um, his geopolitics books. Uh, Ethnos and society is more encyclopedic, in my opinion. He gets more of he's a lot of sociological definitions. Yeah, um, you can he, even see it in a way as a textbook, in a way that the fourth political theory is not a textbook, rise of the fourth political theory is not a textbook. Ethnosociology does have that uh, that feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, go on, sorry. So uh, I guess my main question is, is that, like, I think he's, he probably formed these beliefs. I feel like he, feel, uh, he formed a lot of his beliefs prior to reading a lot of these readers, like, say, Husserl and, and Strauss. But he incorporates and develops this, this like elaborate but also pretty terse vocabulary uh, with regard to you know the ethnos, the narod, and all that. Uh, uh, did you did you want to describe the larger frame that you mentioned? Yeah. Earlier? So let me give you let me give you a little bit of background. So first of all, um, it's interesting to me that he comes up in the context of some online discussions, specifically um, this ethnosociological part of his thought. Mm-hmm. Um, for people who do go look into it, because one of the things that I always thought was um, strange, at least in my um, university experience. So after my undergraduate, I went, I did a master's and PhD. I continued to work on Dugan in my PhD and it caused me a lot of grief. I had four um, people resign from my committee. I had my dissertation supervisor resign. All of these people really uh, couldn't handle uh, my interest in Dugan. And so I always thought, I always characterized it as like, you know, they go and they Google his name 
and they see, you know, a Facebook post that he made about Ukrainians or they see something else and they just jump to the conclusion that he's like a Satanist, which many of them did. Um, and these are university professors who, in principle, could have dug a little bit deeper. So anybody mm-hmm. who has the patience um, and the stomach, you know, or the interest to even discover that he has some uh, knowledge about cultural anthropology, not to mention something like an encyclopedic presentation of various national schools of cultural anthropology, which is in effect what that book um, is. So you can break ethnosociology. So let me give you some background on the book itself. In Russian, it's a single text, ethnosociology, seven or eight hundred pages. And in English, it's broken up into two parts, ethnos and society. And I think the second volume published by Arctos recently is called Foundations of Ethnosociology or Ethnosociology, the Foundations, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, the first part of the book is an overview of various national schools of um, cultural anthropology and so on. And then in the second half, Dugan develops his own conceptual um, framework for how the ethnos is the simplest society and it has various derivatives, how they relate to one another, how we can use them for sociological analysis and so forth. Well, if all that you knew about Dugan was his ethnosociology, I think that would justify an interest in him as a thinker. Because, first of all, he gives a pretty broad, um, how would you put it, like, he has a broad overview of the schools, which is already interesting, because many people just operate within a school and don't always step back to see what the differences are, to try to correlate them, to try to contrast them, uh, adjust them where, where need be. So in his own right, I think that book shows that he's a pretty interesting thinker. Um, but something that is worth knowing if you know about ethnosociology is that it also has a place in a broader structure of his thought, um, as I mentioned to you earlier and as you were alluding to. So let me let me give you an example of that. Um, he mentions, I think it's in the fourth political theory, that if you think about, uh, if you use a tripartite view of, of uh, the human being as like body, soul, and spirit, just for a minute, you can have three analogy, uh, three disciplines that are analogous to it. So geopolitics corresponds to the body, Ethnosociology corresponds to the soul. Theology corresponds to the spirit. Elsewhere, he has said that the German philosopher Martin Heidegger is the deepest foundation of the fourth political theory. So in his own systematic structure, we have actually four components. Geopolitics, ethnosociology, theology, and Heidegger's philosophy. I interviewed Dugan in print about um, his Heideggerianism, and I asked him how Heidegger relates to these other disciplines. And he said... This isn't um, this isn't an exhaustive answer, but it's suggestive that Heidegger is the being towards death of each of these components. So hmm. that's something to think about. And so much of what Dugan writes, especially where you begin to draw connections between something he said in one work and something he said elsewhere, uh, it can be more suggestive than exhaustive, as I say. Um, but ethnosociology does have that more primarily expository um, feel to it. So in the broader scope of his system, it fits in between geopolitics and theology. And I can give you an example even of how it relates to his Heideggerianism. So one of the key concepts from ethnosociology, I decided to transliterate it. I didn't do this with many terms. In fact, I didn't do it with any terms uh, other than this one when translating Dugan. The Russian word is narod. Narod has the meaning of people, but people isn't an adequate translation of it, even according to Dugan's own account. Rough um, analogs in other languages would be folk in German, am in Hebrew, um, and laos, L-A-O-S, in Greek. So I figured uh, basically that it was worth transliterating. 
Well, this narod, this category of the folk or the people, the narod, is actually not just um, crucial for Dugin ethno-sociologically, and it is crucial for him, um, and we can discuss why in a minute, but also philosophically, because when he writes about Heidegger, and by the way, I just have to emphasize, I mean, I do, the, I do some reading groups on Dugin and some seminars on him, and I want to take the occasion here to emphasize it, that the, in order to understand him fully, you have to understand him at least to an extent, and I would say to a large extent, as uh, a philosophical supremacist or as someone for whom philosophy is of the utmost importance. So if you just focus on his geopolitics and you bracket the philosophy or the meaning of Heidegger for him or something, you'll get a more distorted view than if you bracket the geopolitics and focus on the Heidegger. Ultimately, you need everything together, but uh, it's just crucial. So the, co the category of the narod or the people for him stands in very intimate relationship with Heidegger's notion of Dasein. In fact, he interprets Dasein as folk, as he writes. Dasein as narod. So this existential ethno-sociology based on the category of the people, or the narod, is like a key to understanding various aspects of Dugan, including his geopolitics. Um, so you see, what I, what I said to you in our uh, earlier remarks um, was that like the book Ethno-Sociology, and this is true of a lot of Dugan's um, books, I would say, or statements, you get into it, and it can be self-contained, but if you go deeper, suddenly it branches out into the into this, uh, it reveals or discloses a world uh, that is kind of interesting, intriguing, uh, more or less coherent, and I just want to point that out because it's not obvious um, at first glance. Right, uh, and I think one of the most interesting entry points uh, from a systemic perspective is uh, the way he discusses primitive symbol systems, uh, and language, so evocative language, and as far as how these, like his idea of the ethnos unfolds, right? Uh, and it just, like I said, it reminded me a lot of uh, like La Pensée Sauvage, where they talk more about the the acquisition of meaning, right, within a folk, uh, and how the way that that was studied, like forked, kind of forked from like Enlightenment rational scientific thinking, where uh, another another work was, for example, like on, or I guess part of part of the Pensee Sauvage is the distinction between the like the bricolure and the engineer, and uh, like it's kind of talking about like modalities of like for example work or you know like uh, you know actuation versus say more you know like Enlightenment you know rationalist thinkers we talk more about taxonomy right, um, and I guess the way that the the Dugan differentiates differentiates that that you mentioned was in uh is reason versus intellect right so there's there's a uh, a nuos which is an intent which is an intentional but pre self reflexive uh like 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 thinking and like bringing about versus like uh versus reason which is more uh reflexive correct uh yeah i think that's yeah i think that's fair to say um one point I want to make about his interest in um, the anthropologists, cult cultural anthropologists and these other schools, mm -hmm. it is it is um, crucial for him. I mean, it's important. You see it by the fact that he wrote a book on it and the fact that the concept of ethnosociology is a part of a system. But even in the fourth political theory, he refers <coughs> like he refers often to the insights of the cultural anthropologists as being a, a key component of distancing ourselves from the view of 
Enlightenment rationality, from unipolar uh, Western globalism, hegemony, you know, all of those types of things, the dominance of liberalism. Uh, as important as Heidegger is to him, cultural anthropologists are, let's, let's say for our purposes, um, this is not strictly speaking correct, but they're equally important. I mean, he, he thinks that, that that mode of studying societies, and so for example, right now I'm, I'm reading uh, some of his, he's got a series of books called No Omakia. War, the ba- Battle of Noose, war, war of Noose, okay, Wars of Noose, basically. Um, and even there, when he talks about the importance of creating distance from our contemporary understanding of space and time, basically, you know, seeing ourselves as standing at the peak of uh, modern Western history and judging everything that came before as somehow un- underdeveloped or inadequate. Um, one of the key ways that he creates a distance or suggests creating a distance is by focusing our attention on the methods and on the researches of cultural anthropologists. So it is vital for him. And not just the linguistic aspect, which you point out, um, the study of the use of language in, in, in more primitive societies or in simpler societies. If you remember in ethnosociology, I have to tell you the truth, I don't actually know whether it came out in volume one or volume two in the English translation, okay? So I'm not sure whether it's in ethnos and society or in the other volume. Um, but he talks about the transformation of language in global society, right? He compares it to the transformation of language um, in national society and all of these different components. So, so, so the way he traces that, the way he traces that is what is what really interests me because he traces it in a very almost material historical context of like, for example, going from hunter-gatherer cultures, right, to like uh, castle-centered agricultural powers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... So, or, or different traumas causing the generation of the Narod or ethnos, like the nomadic, right, uh, Laos, the generative generation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's very interesting to, like, see, that, like, the way he actually describes it ends up using a lot of material kind of historiography as far as, like, how technique and, like, how, you know, differences in power differentials shaped, you know, the, uh, the uh, ethnological process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think he's opposed to the use of those types of methods or to taking mm-hmm. on a question from different perspectives. Uh, so elsewhere, you know, he'll trace the shifts in language from a more metaphysical or ontological perspective. Mm-hmm. And we can find both approaches interesting, Make try to understand to what extent, um, if any, they can be correlated to one another. And mm-hmm. he himself will, ha- I mean... We can ask him, you know, to provide an answer of the correlation. And I, I did when I interviewed him. I said, you treat people in one way in ethnosociological analysis. You treat it from a different perspective in your Heideggerian analysis. Can, how do you see their deeper correlation, these two uh, approaches, right, to the study, let's say, of society? Mm-hmm. And he, he didn't have, I wouldn't say that he had a satisfactory answer. It doesn't mean that we can't um, fashion one, Right. Right. But yeah, he's not he's not unwilling to use uh, those kinds of me- um, analyses and methods and approaches. So that gives him a lot of content. And then it's our it's as I say, it remains a task to correlate those different uh, approaches to see whether they can be made to fit together. So, for example, like if he as you say, right, he does the type of analysis he does in ethnosociology. He does a different type of analysis in his Heideggerian books and. Is there an overlap or isn't there, right? Are, are they compatible mm-hmm. or not? And mm-hmm. are they both necessary or not, you know? Right, right. Um, so how, Some, how does... Can I just add, can I just add one thing on the, on the topic of language um, mm-hmm. and the importance of language for him? So 
I can only say this roughly, okay, because I haven't read it recently enough to, to go into the full detail. But he has, so he has a series of books called No Omakia, as I mentioned, right? Battle or Wars of the Intellect. It's his way of studying what he calls civilizational multipolarity. So the idea that there are many different civilizations, they can't be put under one standard, right? Like the Western European rationality and so on. Um, our tools for studying them are derived for him in part from Heidegger and these other disciplines. So this big, massive project, it's like tw more than 20 volumes, I think, okay? And the first two volumes are met methodological. They set out his idea that there are uh, three logoi, you know, as part of like his basically comparative uh, noetic civilizational analysis, that type of thing. It's actually pretty interesting. Well, mm -hmm. he says the pre-volume to that whole project is something called In Search of the Dark Logos. It's another one of the untranslated works, okay? In Search yeah, of the Dark Logos. Right. For him, Dark Logos is, a, is, Di is Dionysus. It's sort of the underground, mystical, half-concealed uh, approach to philosophy and mythology, um, as opposed to, like, the, as he puts it, solar, heroic, vertical figure of Apollo. So there's, like, mm -hmm. an Apollonian history of philosophy, and there's a Dionysian history of philosophy. In Search mm -hmm. of the Dark Logos is looking for the Dionysian history of philosophy. It's it's a call towards Dionysus. And the book begins, strangely enough, I think, with um, a Russian linguist. And I, I believe, as I say, I haven't read it in a while. I think it was a Russian linguist. And three different um, linguistic models. So the, the, whole, the very first step towards the Dark Logos and the search for Dionysus in this book is actually um, structural linguistics. And different modes, uh, you know, different modes of organizing them. I wish I had read it recently enough if I knew it was going to come up here that I can actually walk through what they are. So are but they I only point that out for like the importance of the linguistic question at the forefront um, of that search for Dionysus, which is just kind of unexpected. Would it would it. So the the, treat, the linguistics treatise, would it be something that would be at home with like orthodox Anglosphere structural linguistics analysis like, you know. I don't know well enough about uh, the, you know, <laughs> about about that to say, you know. But basically, mm -hmm. it's that there are um, there were like three different linguistic models. In some of them, the concepts, two concepts are taken as polar opposites. You know, in another one, there's something like a gradient between them, and in another one, there's neither a gradient nor are they opposites. They're somehow like just rest on the same plane without attention. Something along mm -hmm. those lines. And he correlates that uh, Russian linguists uh, tripartite model eventually to what to this broader tripartite model of the three logoi apollo dionysus and sibylle or the black logos um but again that's just to say that he the linguistic question would have to be important for him in order for him to open the book in, in search of dionysus on that and not some other uh, topic hmm. uh and you know and, it, and the book closes on heidegger so it kind of takes you full circle from language and linguistics to uh to heidegger that's very it's it's very interesting um yeah, so... Sorry, let me so, just mention one, one other thing, too, if I can. So, sure, go for um, it. This, again, is about language and, and, uh, and Heidegger. Is it okay? I mean, I don't want to overemphasize if there are other places we'd let, you'd like to take the conversation. But um, So Dugan has a couple of books on Heidegger, okay? Mm -hmm. And the second one, not translated yet into English, called Martin Heidegger, The Possibility of Russian Philosophy. The question of language is particularly important there because he says that if you take um, Heidegger, so his first book is basically like an introduction to Russian speakers of Heidegger's thought that he mm -hmm. thinks is more adequate than the um, introductions that were made in the Soviet period. Okay, He thinks those ones are pretty much worthless. 
So for the most part, he translates Heidegger into Russian there or uses the um, just transliterates the German. But in the second Heidegger book, he says, look, we can't do that anymore because now we have to ask the question whether a translation of these terms is possible at all. So is is does being mean the same thing in Russian and English and in German? Or you see, does the whole ontological territory change together with the language, as it were? Okay. And his um, analysis of Heidegger's terminology in Russian mm-hmm. suggests to him in that second Heidegger book that actually the Russian relation to being is different, is ontologically, existentially, metaphysically different than the German and English relationship to being as reflected in the language. So that's one thing. And he also traces, for example, the shifts in the Russian verb to be and in other key Russian words from mm-hmm. church Slavonic to, um, you know, contemporary Russian, basically, you see. So even the even attending to the way the language changed, uh, as I say, from from the early f- formulations through church Slavonic to to um, modern Russian is for him not just a sign of linguistic changes, but a sign of, like I say, deeper ontological structural changes. So that whole domain is fair fair game. Uh, all the tools of linguistic analysis and uh, linguistic history are for him uh, on the table. Moreover, I mean, he identifies there are some complicated nuances here, but you can say that he is a Eurasianist. Okay. Mm-hmm. More technically, in his own self-presentation, he's a neo-Eurasianist. Well, as he explains it in his own writing, why is he a neo-Eurasianist? Because he takes the original insights of the Eurasianist um, Russian emigres. He enriches them or supplements them with the discoveries of 20th century um, geopolitics, uh, uh, philosophy, um, postmodern philosophy, and so on. So all of the riches of 20th century thought enriches the original insights of the Eurasianists and therefore is like a neo-Eurasianist. Okay. Well, when he gives you an account of the original Eurasianists, he says they were the teachers I mean, I can't remember the exact figures who taught whom, but I think it was like Pyotr Savitsky was the teacher of Levi Strauss or something like that. In other words, there's a direct link between the original Russian Eurasianists and the and the school of uh, structural linguistics. You see, so mm-hmm. it's not just he happens to have an interest in it. It's essential to the relationship between you, the original Eurasianism and neo-Eurasianism. So can I say, can I ask something about that? Is that... Yes. Um, Say a lot of the philosophers, a lot of the philosophers from the Western uh, Europe, like more instead of like say England, right, or the Scottish philosophers, or you know uh, even French or German anthropologists, uh, say like the Victorian in, during the Victorian type era, comparing them to the the Russian or turn of the century Russian anthropologists or, or Russian influencing anthropologists like say Husserl. Um, the uh it's not like the russian the russian anthropologists are very reflexive because uh for example you know say they analyze a lot of like populist movements within russia and like peasant movements and also like primitive primitive quote unquote primitive peoples living within russia whereas say the victorian anthropologists you know so to say like whenever they analyze like quote unquote primitive societies they're usually like looking at like say like you know latin america africa you know the colonies that they'll have, right? Um, how how is that shaped? How does that? Do you think that there's there's that self-reflexive self-reflexive kind of reason at play within how the Russian philosophical tradition has developed from the phenomenologists? I'm not completely sure, okay? mm-hmm. so I can't 
I don't feel like I can answer that um, confidently. But it's possible that if uh, if one school of thought sees um, the archaic or the primitive as outside of itself, mm-hmm. and another society sees the archaic or the primitive as within itself, mm-hmm. that that would give rise to two different. Um, sociological self-analyses, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's plausible. And the fact that, at least for Dugan, um, Russia does contain the primitive and the archaic within itself, that mm-hmm. that is um, almost axiomatical for him. So in the second Heidegger book, and elsewhere, because he's written a whole book called Archaeomodernity, right, Archaeomodernity right. <laughs> is the sociological structure of Russia that it's simultaneously, domestically, modern mm-hmm. and pre-modern. You know, so if you thought that the pre-modern was outside your borders, I think that you would have a different analysis, a different sociological analysis, a different self-understanding, a different methodology, probably even a different um, world picture as concerns the relation of nations and cultures, civilizations and so on. Um, but, yeah, so Dugan sees the primitive and the archaic in Russia, but as actually as something to. So most you might say, OK, from the point of view of uh, progressivist uh, position, if you identified the primitive within yourself, the goal would be to develop it. You know, but in Dugan's analysis, once you've identified that Russia has an archaic and a modern pole, the goal is actually to explode or get rid of the modern pole and to liberate the archaic pole. You know, so his his whole philosophical operation, as far as uh, Russian society is concerned, is to liberate what's archaic or primitive in Russia uh, against what's modern in it. All right. And incidentally, I mean, he wants to, as part of a project that goes beyond Russia, he tries to offer, um, you know, the, me- the methodological resources for other cultures and civilizations to do something similar. Right. So relating that to like online Internet culture, that's actually a common theme you'll see is that a lot of conservative movements are um, kind of like archaic, archaicist revivalist kind of in how they shape their language and how they like they, they, they even you know write literature right and put things out um yeah so can i just say something about mm-hmm. that i don't mean to you know to jump right in but i have to clarify so first of all you'll have to tell me like you know because you know that i don't really spend a lot of time uh checking to see you know how the archaic is is depicted in those um contexts but i can mm-hmm. tell you that dugan is not saying when i when i say he wants to um liberate the archaic in russia Mm-hmm. He doesn't, this is, it's a crucial distinction for him through and through. He doesn't mean I want to roll back the clock to some old way of speaking or old way of dressing or, you know, old way of self, old mode of self presentation. Um, mm-hmm. The archaic for him has a philosophical significance. And actually, if, if, even if we think about two, if we distinguish two ways of, two kinds of return. So two, uh, two um, attitudes or postures toward time and therefore two different modes of return. One mode that wants to roll back the clock, you see, to an earlier time, and mm-hmm. another mode that wants to, as it were, abolish time. You know, that what's archaic is what's ever present after the abolition of time versus mm-hmm. the archaic just being the old, you know, what, what the ancient. So Dugan analyzes both approaches to time. Um, one roughly you could call, I mean, this is not strictly speaking so, but I say roughly, is like a traditionalist view that we got to go back to some older traditions. And another one is somehow like revolutionary conservatism. We need to abolish time and let the ever-present origin uh, make itself felt again. And if if we have those two distinctions, um, he has said, again, in, an, in the interview that I did with him about Heidegger, that the first phase of his thought was traditionalist 
also called Apollonian for him. And the second phase of his thought where he discovered Heidegger became Dionysian. So for him, the liberation of the archaic definitely is more along the lines of abolishing time than of, you know, like I say, let's dress like we did in the 16th century or something like that. Right. Um, so on that note, like a lot of what he kind of like talks about in interviews whenever trying to relate it to something the public can understand is talking about like something kind of fantastical like transhumanism, right? Because the main concern, right, is technological and art versus the, te the technological things that have emerged versus the archaic. And Heidegger has discussed a lot of that. But there's also a lot of interesting international. There's like, for example, there's Chinese and Japanese uh, philosoph political philosophers who've gone back to look at Heidegger and talked about, OK, you know, how do we reconcile technics? Right. That kind of thing. Uh, and Dugan, Dugan, oddly enough, for all of his, you know, He's denounced the internet and he's denounced a lot of technology, but he's used like it's the internet is like uh, what he's used almost exclusively to get you know his audience. And he's extremely technically you know uh, rationated you know in how he yeah, delivers sure. things, which sure. is it's it's very uh, it's it's an interesting paradox you know um, you know which makes him interesting more than anything. Um, can I just add to that? Like, I mean, when I first discovered this, I thought it was pretty interesting. You may know and your viewers may know, but um, this is about his savvy, his Internet savvy. Right. So mm -hmm. he's got like, I don't know, 20 websites, you know, in this network uh, that's trying to p push the various components of a new worldview. Um, and it's pretty interesting. Like some people, they can go to one of his sites. I mean, you don't know right off the bat, I guess, that they belong to a network. Right. And that's like a very well thought out technical, technological Internet uh, um, warfare type strategy, right? Mm -hmm. But you can land on one page and it will be like, pro you know, political propaganda of a very low sort. And then you go to another page and it's his Moscow State University lectures on 24-7 repeat. And then you go to another um, page and it's like uh, a school of Neoplatonism. And then you go to another page, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And it's, it's all like firing on all fronts from the most vulgar um, political propaganda to pretty relatively sophisticated philosophical writings. And, and it's part of like a conscious yeah, uh, yeah, internet war yeah. strategy. You know, and I'm one other just... thing too, sorry, just what I gotta <laughs> say, like if people, if they, if you ever have seen, uh, your viewers may, may well have seen some of his like Moscow State University lectures or something like that. So on one hand, you know, it's just a professor sitting at a desk in a pretty, you know, um, like on adorned room, right? But mm -hmm. they put the, the additional production in where they're like, you know, all of the back, like, you know, it's like you're at some I've sort of it, ele it. electronica it, concert with, you know, this yeah. so I, I've seen the high I've production value. Yes, I've seen there, right? I've seen the productions, but I was it's it's kind of vulgar to do this. But like, you know, it, it really is true that like uh, to compare it to some other productions in the American political sphere where they similarly have these weird networks of video production websites that are just like completely glammed up. And, you know, they're usually selling some sort of product with it. Uh, and it's. It's even people who are not even like super edgy, but like, I don't know, political and lifestyle philosophers. I'll, I won't you know, mention them by name, but, uh, you know, the ones selling books, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> sorry, I have a cough. But uh, yeah, um, talked about the material. So, like I said, the, the paradoxes and like he 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 kind of mixes material history, you know, technical language with, you know, uh, what he sees as an inherently mystical, uh, like, um, like, you know, worldview. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the interesting things I found was, uh, so he goes over a lot of civilization. In Ethnos Society, he goes over a lot of uh, older civilizations like the Akkadians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and then also nomadic peoples like the Mongolian, Mongols, the Turks, uh, other nations, and talks about nomadicism in the generation of the Narod from the Ethnos, which is like these these events, right, that happen. It somehow separate, right, of peoples. And, like, that's that's probably one of, like, the, the most inherent generating event, right, because you know, everyone, like, the, the, there's, like, kind of a dissipative history, right, of, like, peoples, right, separating, right, from a from a rational worldview, right, of, of you know, like, a, you know, peop- the histories of peoples, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, so... How, whenever, whenever you talk to, whenever you talk to students and you talk to, uh, so you teach in Canada, right? You, you, and you have, you have a lot of people coming from all these different places. How do you, in, in your own pedagogy, do you like to talk to your students about their, about how you see or what you'd like to hear about, like the history of their own places, right? Well, okay, a few things I gotta say about that. So I'm not teaching at the moment. I mentioned I had a little bit of an issue at my university. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue wasn't like with my, uh, my work or, you know, how I was teaching, cause, for five years, I was a teaching assistant, and it was great with the students. Like, it couldn't have been better. You know, the relationships were good. The feedback was great and all of that. But I'm effectively blacklisted from teaching in North America, to be honest. All right. So I, uh, I am no longer in academia, but I do. I have started doing, like, reading groups and seminars on my own time, sort of like a private uh, university type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can say that even when I was at the university, I... Maybe it's because of my strong um, departmental prejudice or my prejudice in favor of like political philosophy as opposed mm-hmm. to cultural anthropology as like my primary area of um, interest and expertise, you know, and what I think is more of is like the key in a way to understanding the relevance of these other things for Dugan. So when when I interacted with other students, well, let me put it this way. A lot of the students who came up to me, if I ever had a chance to let myself come through, which you don't always have, you know, in the in, in academia, Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of times I had students come to me and they were from Eastern Europe or they were from China or somewhere. And they were like, wow, we never knew how deeply ingrained Western liberal propaganda was, you know, until we took Paul 101, basically. Right. Where like Mm -hmm. everything is so is so like comically one sided as far Mm -hmm. as the dominance of liberalism goes. Whereas at least in my discussions, I tried to point out, you know, give as strong as a case as I could give to the critical perspectives, whatever they might be. So it wasn't so much that I was asking students, like, you know, tell me more about your um, cultural history, you know, or about, like, the development of your civilization or your people or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was more focused on what are the ideas that we're taking for granted, you know, and what are the legitimate criticisms that we're leaving out of the picture? Mm-hmm. What justifies that? And what's to be gained by putting those legitimate criticisms back on the table? Right. So I always tried to operate, like, at that level, respectfully. And even in my... uh my main work, my dissertation, was a comparative study of receptions of Heidegger in political theory. So mm-hmm. it included Dugan's, because Heidegger is so big for Dugan, but mm-hmm. also Leo Strauss's, Derrida's, yeah. Richard there's a huge, there's, you know? a, there's a huge canon of, like, philosophers from all kind of angles, like, you know, either, like, language techniques or on just, you know, classics like Plato, right, that you, that you kind of emphasize the back to basics. And one of the things I was going to ask is how has, like, reading Dugan influenced how you reread Plato or Strauss or these uh, others? That's, you know, that's actually something that was so unexpected for me about reading Dugan. Because again, 
I don't know how much exactly your viewers know, you know, so maybe you just think he's a cultural anthropologist or maybe you hear him about post-humanism, yeah. or transhumanism, right? Or maybe mm. some, maybe something else, right? Pops right, up or right. like he's not national Bolshevism, all, yeah. all of the things that could come up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but to compare him, for example, to Strauss, because Leo, Leo Strauss, I mean, well, mm. this sort of, uh, you know, a very different kind of person, you know, and a very different, um, like Leo Strauss would not come up on online internet meme culture, I assume, right? right in the way that right. Egan does. And, and yeah. Leo Strauss well, never... So went, I'll, you know. I'll, I'll emphasize that, that like a lot of the introductory things that people see usually are like Nazbol memes. Yeah. Like, and I guess, I mean, that's the, that's the one kind of funny thing I'll, the quote unquote funny thing I'll throw in is that they're usually very edgy Nazbol memes that, you know, or people professing to be Nazbol, um, but also uh, a little less than that, like, like, strange like occult or say like like professedly like satanic people or new agey people right uh like relating to some of like like having some of his work in weird weird archives because they collect like these kind of eclectic mm-hmm. uh like thinkers on mystic traditions so those, that's the two kind of main you know internet sources you see on that but you know I'll, yeah, I'll so leave let's, it if you started with that you wouldn't mm-hmm. re- you wouldn't expect or I wouldn't expect there to be a meaningful, valuable comparison to make with someone like Leo Strauss. They no, just come no, from two. No. And yet, you know, and yet, to my, yeah. I would say to my surprise, there is a valuable yeah. comparison to make. So, and, yeah, one it, of the like, ways. So, can I, what I say? It seems, it seems really ridiculous, and it's very hard to explain to people, uh, especially since like you can't. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, for example, just show them the fourth political theory or foundation geopolitics or even his other things like on the archaeo technique type stuff. I would show them ethnos and society and be like, he like, like despite his like whatever whatever beliefs you may have about him, he has an extremely encyclopedic knowledge of the strange canon of anthropologists and classical, you know. Philosophers, yeah, but like to try to convince people yeah, that we're taking yeah. seriously for sure. Yeah, so yeah. I tried in my departmental context, you know, I tried to do that with uh, his Heidegger works. It didn't work as soon as they Googled him and they saw that he was on the yeah. Alex Jones show, for example. That was the end of the discussion for them. So to hell with them, really. Like, like as far as the connection with Strauss and how I started to, you know, what I learned from Dugan about reading Plato and these other thinkers. So mm-hmm. I would put it like this: I. I'm a huge proponent of reading Leo Strauss. So I don't know how your viewers, you know, the people who watch uh, and read you, what they think about Strauss, but I mm-hmm. recommend him extremely highly. And one of the things that I learned from Strauss was a depth, a depth of getting into any particular author. So mm-hmm. Strauss can go so something that you read once and then you read it again under Strauss's tutelage or guidance. It'll just reveal so many additional dimensions. So to me, Strauss was a uh, gave me a lot of depth. But when mm-hmm. I encountered Dugan, uh, I thought, you know what? I'm getting a lot of breadth here because mm-hmm. Strauss never wrote about 10, 20 different schools mm-hmm. of cultural anthropology. And, and I'd never heard of Arthur Mueller Vandenbroek or yeah. Henri Corbin yeah. or all of these people I learned about by reading Dugan. So, and by so, the way, so, so what yeah, he's mentioning, I just, I just want to, okay, I, I, I like what you're going on, but what, he, what he's mentioning is so pretty much every paragraph of Ethnosis Society, uh, Every, every other paragraph or every paragraph and sometimes in a paragraph, every sentence, he'll casually cite some author like Strauss or some, you know, random anthropologist or, you know, um, Clifford Yeertz, you know, yeah. Husserl. He'll just like snip some random quote and he doesn't do a whole, his style isn't where he does a whole commentary that's like a whole essay on that snippet. He just kind of casually inserts into this kind of web, right. like this web. 
Yeah, which whereas is, like Leo yeah, says, yeah. it's a whole book on Hobbes, a whole book mm-hmm. on Machiavelli, you know, a whole mm-hmm. book on one sentence in Plato, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the debt going, but yeah, Dugan, you're like, wow, he's, even if you are, <laughs> even if you're a, let's say you're a, you're not, you're a not, not bull mm-hmm. or you're a traditionalist or something. Mm-hmm. And then he says like, you must read George, you must read Bataille. Like you've mm-hmm. got to read Deleuze and Guattari. Mm-hmm. You're, you know what I mean? Like that, that's kind of, I, that's very appealing to me. So the mm-hmm. breadth of his uh, knowledge, and he did an interview, uh, a written interview not so long ago. Uh, I can't, I think it was like posted on long reads. I can't remember exactly who did it. It's really funny and interesting, you know, and he talks about himself as a metaphysical hacker and so on. But he, you really <laughs> get the sense there of like his thirst for, for reading everything. He's like, mm-hmm. like triple exclamation mark in this, in this interview. He's like, there's not enough time to read everything. You just have mm-hmm. to read, 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 you know? And one, and, of the, one of the unfortunate things too is, as like, I'm sorry, I, I keep doing no, this. That's like, fine. A lot, a lot of fine. kind of like, I'm not trying to like clean his name, but as, as, as far as a, a hermeneutical source, um, in the Anglosphere, like you mentioned, his initial appearances in our media is like Alex Jones. So I'm, I'm from, I'm from like Texas. I actually lived in Austin, Austin, Texas, and I was actually living in Austin, Texas whenever he, like he he periodically would show on just kind of like calling and talk to Alex about you know multipolarity and all these things right but it's his like like he he uh, he he doesn't sound as smart or as intelligible speaking English uh, his Russian lectures are extremely long fast and eloquent and jumping all these different topics and the websites that he was mentioning earlier uh, that like have some of them. Uh, like, uh, all the RU extension, like, you know, 4pt.su, dugan.ru and whatnot. Yeah. Platonismum. Like yeah. he said, there's just these hours and hours of just like eloquent, like connect, you know, well, the same material he has in his books. Um, but, uh, anyway, we were talking, yeah, we were no, talking it is, about it density. is like, it's genuine, it is genuinely, uh, frustrating, I think, for somebody who finds Dugan to be, um, a valuable resource or like just an interesting thinker mm-hmm. to, to have, to have to deal with the fact that um, at least like, in, I think the picture is getting better because more works are becoming available in English. You know, I, I, I myself have tried to give um, a, not a generous, but like a fair account of him as a serious thinker, you know, but mm-hmm. before then uh, he, he didn't make it easy. Right. In his English mm-hmm. language um, interviews, well, he, the he other thing is, there's a BBC, made... there's a BBC interview some people point to where he says like to the interviewer, he says, well, Russia has our own truth. And the interviewer is like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, you have your truth. We have ours. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who have asked me, they're like, you can't possibly think he's a serious thinker. Like, just look at that interview. It's like, it's mm-hmm. like a schoolyard cultural relativism. And mm-hmm. then you think like, well, you know, if you knew the 25 volumes of Noomachia, if you knew the existential multipolarity, or, or, or even just in ethos and society, he calls he that the the language he uses to describe that is um, neural neural reason intellect, right? We have right. we have we have intellect. We have the pre-reflexive neuros, right? But we don't have intellect, right? Which is what he he mentioned that, or you know, Western rationality that he mentioned. But like, um, he it's not only the Anglosphere that he's kind of like that that he's obviously like been controversial with but internationally just because of for example with Ukraine and uh like um just Russia's international activities and kind of his association yeah, with that. That's true. I mean a lot of people say for example uh I mean as far as the critics who think about this stuff, right, or even know his name, 
Um, they will focus on his um, activism, right? Or he's an agent, he's an operative. Here he is in Italy, right. here he is well, in Brazil, it's, here he is in Bannon. Not whatever, only right? that, but it's, it's hard for, say, it would be hard, it's also hard for, say, uh, say an American classical Catholic theologian or Christian to cite him, like, politically, because he has strange, like, uh, what would be considered, like, New Agey almost believes here in America that would be interpreted that way. Like, uh, he, he, he's involved with some sort of, like, chaos magician movement earlier on and that kind of thing. So he's, like, he'd be, like, th- th- there's all sorts of strange barriers, like, for him not being taken seriously. But sure. I, he, he's a, kind of like a wily coyote as far as running around and collecting all these justifications for uh, his, uh, his, his worldview, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, there are a lot of obstacles. He is very eclectic. Uh, the people who have taken the time to get to know him, like um, Charles Clover, a journalist who wrote a book called Black Wind, White Snow. Mm-hmm. I think it's called. Did I get that right? Uh, anyways, something along those lines. If you read the part of his book on Dugan, it's like, on one hand, very sympathetic to Dugan as this intellectually eclectic person. You know, I think that probably comes across to anybody who gets to know him well as a thinker, you know, through interviews and so on. Um, but definitely there are these obstacles. And I always thought it was, okay, so suppose that you um, you look him up and you see not just that he's into um, chaos magic and, you know, <laughs> not just that he's in meme, you know, a figure mm-hmm. on the, in meme world and so on, mm-hmm. but also that he has these other books. So it's just say that, that you're faced with that fact, right? So mm-hmm. some people, even some like, in, you know, intelligent, you know, professionals, what they do is they, they, um, just collapse everything into the lowest possible interpretation, right? So faced mm-hmm. with this multi-dimensional, uh, reality, they collapse everything to its worst possible interpretation, right? And mm-hmm. the problem there is that it's actually a puzzle. How can these things, how do these things coexist? Like, how does the same person who wrote a pretty good book on Heidegger, like I'm telling you as a doctor of political philosophy who wrote my dissertation on Heidegger, that Dugan stuff on Heidegger is pretty good. It's better than a lot of his critics' readings of Heidegger and so on, right? Mm. How does this same person um, coexist with, you know, <laughs> the mimetic uh, warfare Dugan, right? It's not easy for everyone to understand how those piece together. In fact, just to show you the difficulty, mm-hmm. um, my former dissertation supervisor, once suggested that I am the author of Dugan's first Heidegger book because he couldn't conceive of Dugan having written it. So he said, mm. I must have written it, you know, which is kind of interesting, I think. But yeah, like, is... in fact, in Dugan, he's complex enough that these things coexist and therefore it's actually a puzzle to try to understand how they relate to one another. I, I don't, I don't mean to, I don't mean to, like, to justify any of his, his uh, geopolitical actions or beliefs uh, this way, but uh, comparing him to like a legitimately older figure in history, like say, uh, some sort of European radical, you know, uh, reformist or noble person during like, you know, medieval times or the Renaissance almost, like, you find like, so, like, you know, Pierre Caron de Beaumarchais, like, you have these, like, you have like, like more inherently geopolitically extreme people, uh, in, you know, such an, uns- you know, a country that has been so politically unstable over the years, like Russia. <coughs> so it, it is, like, easy for, I guess, for Americans to judge, uh, you know, people like Dugan. That doesn't completely justify, you know, everything he does, but... Um, yeah, one one thing, just as far as uh, the American audience goes of his thought. So in, uh, he has a book in English, I think it's just, like, uh, a combination of various, ri- dis- you know, disparate writings, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Eurasian Mission, that's the title of it. And mm-hmm. he's got a section there called The Prospects of the Fourth Political Theory in uh, the United States. Okay, so And he acknowledges that his ideas are least likely of all to take root in the United States for various uh, legitimate reasons. But, he says, um, if they were to have an audience in America, it would be on... You know, for these three different, uh, in these three different formats. Like one would be if an American thought of themselves not as, uh, the new world, but as the periphery of Europe, right? Because then you could include yourself in the whole analysis of European history and of mm-hmm. European philosophy. And suddenly that gives you access to the insights of the fourth political theory. But he even says like, um, I mean, I wish I could pull out the passages and read them, but he, but almost kind of like American new age thought could be a version of the fourth political theory. And American, mm-hmm. um, existent, American, exist, like, existentialist thinkers who confronted death, you know, and, ni- and nihilism also could be an entrance point to Dugan's thought because a yeah, lot of it so has to do with our facing I, I, death. Right. I, I will say on this is that there's actually a democratic political campaign, uh, uh, like, uh, what's it called? Candidate, right? Named Marianne Wilson, who's basically the language he uses is like a literal, like, analog of the idea of the ethnos, because she talks about, like, people losing their meaning and all these other factors behind American social decline you, with that same kind of anthropological, sociological, you know, symbol meaning, you know, type systems. Uh, but you can, we can continue getting deep into Dugan uh, and other philosophers, but I wanted to, bef- before we uh, kind of, like, start to wrap it up at least, I wanted to get more into your own pedagogy and how uh, all these, these people that you've read and, you know, interconnected and reread have influenced how you teach uh, or taught yeah. and what you currently work. You know, okay, well, let me just say um, again. So if, if Strauss, Leo Strauss, for me, was the source of like the primary source for me to learn about depth and how to read an author carefully and slowly and how to identify what the great books are and how to treat them with the appropriate care. I mean, mm-hmm. I have to give so much credit to um, to him and to his students for instilling that in me. Um, Dugan gave me a sense of. Um, breadth of and of and of the mystical and the initiatory and the Dionysian in a way that's absent from Strauss. You know, mm-hmm. so Strauss is Strauss. Um, reveres, it's, it's like a map. It's almost like a map that he has as far as what's an ethos in society. He, it's. I mean, he's literally he has visual, literally visual topology, top you know, topographic maps of, all the time. You know, in even work. in his no, even in his no Omakia mm-hmm. books, he has, for example, yeah, he speaks about. Them, he speaks about various logoi as philosophical countries mm-hmm. with their own geometries, and he he always uses circles and triangles and mapping like how things even how things relate to one another. In that sense, he's a very spatial uh, thinker. Right. In fact, he said, "Let me just put this on the record." He said mm-hmm. that you know Heidegger has his book Being in Time. He said that if there were to be an analogous book for a Russian thinker, it would be Being in Space because of the importance of spatiality for, right. for the Russian Dasein. And, and, the, the, and that's, I guess, there's another reason for American philosophers to not like him as much is they tend to be more analytical and furthermore literary. Like, they'll criticize a lot of, say, for example, the French post-structuralist or deconstructionist for using, like, graphical notation or these weird kind of drawings and these assemblages, right, or these strange kind of art, art you know, kind of insertions of of maps of, you know, ideas. Like, I think, I, I think Deleuze did it to some extent, but like in, in with his words, but, um, um, anyway. Yeah. So, I would assume that at least among mainstream schools, so setting aside the, you know, the people who are just satisfied to see him as a not meme or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the analytical school is not likely, you know, to have a big uptake, 
But that's, that's true. Not they haven't even gotten that deep. They haven't even gotten to that level of like, yeah. like thinking that he has that. But like seriously, if you read, his, if you actually read him, right? Like he, it's this very strange, like how the different like forms of eloquence he attempts in expressing his idea. Um, Definitely. I but think so, that, so, like, so most, like, like, like I said, going back to your poet, like I said, going back to your poet. Yeah, okay, fair, fair like, enough. I, so, yeah. Okay. Here's the thing. I, my undergraduate study was in philosophy. My, my graduate study was in political philosophy. The key question for me is the relationship between philosophy and politics. So mm-hmm. the whole history of political philosophy, which basically I read as being concerned with the question of the relationship between philosophy and politics, the meaning of the philosopher for society, whether mm-hmm. politics is primary, whether philosophy is primary, in which way, how we even the combat over the definition of what philosophy is. You see, mm-hmm. so so much of what interests me about Heidegger is that he puts the question of the decision of the essence of philosophy um, up up for us again. Also, mm-hmm. as as I mentioned at the outset, my my initial interest before I'd heard of any of these people, um, Le- Levi Strauss, Leo Strauss, Dugan, well before I heard of any of them, I yeah. was reading mystics. Well before I was in university or knew I was going to university, I was reading uh Mystics of different traditions, Islamic mystics, Sufi mystics, Kabbalistic mystics, Christian mystics, uh, atheistic mystics, so to speak. Right. And, and that and, is like, that and, is for me the soil for everything else. So it's kind of a combination of mysticism, philosophy, and politics and their configuration. And the last thing I'll say is the, the importance of the conversion experience in this whole question. So Dugan has had a conversion experience. You know, and there are other philosophers that you have to read as having had a conversion experience. Yeah, yeah. How that configures their understanding of you know their world configuration, their understanding well, of society, author, authors, authors in general, authors in general, not just political philosophers too. Yeah, right? that could very well be. Again, this is just the domain that I know best <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. relate to more most closely, but <laughs> even more broadly, like that, um, having undergone a some sort of conversion or transformation. If I were to have done a, done a major work after my dissertation, it was going to be on conversion. You mm-hmm. know, so now I have some other things up in the air in my, as I do, as I, as I say, on, on the side, um, outside of academia, but that's really like the nexus of my interest. And all mm-hmm. of my teaching, when I teach Dugan in my online seminars and when I taught anything in um, political science, I do everything that I can in my power to try, first of all, to try to have the concepts be clear, to have, try to have the relationships be clear, the alternatives be clear, but also to somehow prepare the way for what the people that mean the most to me have seemed to have experienced, which is some sort of like encounter with being or inner illumination or mm-hmm. like philosophical thinking as a mystery, right? You know, that type mm-hmm. of thing. So yes. I, I, I'm not, I'm not a magician to be able to have that happen for people, right? But mm-hmm. to be able to create an environment where that's possible, as opposed to reading these thinkers like they're nothing, dismissing them like you already know them, treating them like they're garbage, and basically making it impossible to have a, that type of experience. I fought with my heart and soul, and I still do in my, in my own seminars, against that deadening effect of uh, high-minded bullshit pedagogy and try yeah. to reopen the mystery, whether it's of Plato or of Strauss or of Dugan. Right. And um, so um, let me just say, we, we, can we be, are we good for another about uh, 15 minutes? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. Uh, so um, on that note, uh, his relation to mysticism. So like I, I will say that one of the things he reminded me a lot of reading and going back to now reading now, rereading now, having read Dugan is uh, Islamic theology and Islamic mysticism. Right. And a lot of the language and vocabulary and uh, kind of doing cross comparative analysis uh, with that, um, 
And so that it is, it is, it is very, very comparative in a way, which, uh, in, in, although he, he, he is against globalism in, you know, in, in many ways and, you know, pro, pro, uh, multipolarity, he is very similar to way, the way that Western Europeans have done, and Americans especially, have done comparative mythology, for example. So like Campbell, for example, and a lot of the early semioticians had somewhat similar systems that were post kind of enlightenment with regards to how they treat language, right? Yeah, all of the resources of comparative study are available, whether they were developed in the West or outside the West. The mm-hmm. only thing that has to be kept out of the picture is after the comparison, the unidirectional evaluation. But about mm-hmm. the Islamic uh, mystics and about you know his own conversion experience, so there's a key figure for him, uh, a scholar of Islamic mysticism. I think you pronounce it Henri Corbin, H-E-N-R-I-C-O-R-B-I-N. And mm-hmm. he's, he's a crucial figure for Dugan in many respects. He was a scholar of Islamic mysticism, and he was also the first person to translate fragments of Heidegger into French. And he mm-hmm. straddled that line between uh, ex- uh, Heideggerian existentialism and the serious study of Islamic mysticism, Sufi yeah. mysticism. And he was, he's a, a model for Dugan of the way that you can have this transposition or translation of, uh, of models. And I, I have to say, again, this is uh, not to be like an apologist, sort of like you yourself are, are wary of being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if the only thing I ever learned from Dugan was that there's a scholar named Henri Corbin who, who writes about Islamic mysticism, because I read uh, on on um, I read one of this guy's books on Islamic mysticism, and it's uh, it's great, but he never came up in another context for me. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So Islamic mysticism definitely is um is important. And, another another thing too. Another thing too is just not the detail and the breadth of what he covers, but I would never be able to connect and make sense of some of the authors he cites had I had he not been been, been explaining his language, and I'm sure that somehow shapes my perception. But at least it, it, it does give some sort of starting material for making understandings of how certain materials can be used and how you know what kind of maps they, of meaning you know they provide and whatnot. Absolutely. Um, about his own conversion experience, uh, I just want to say again for anybody who may want to follow it up after, so it's like, you know, I brought it up and where, where can somebody get the, um, the original source for it? So in his book, In Search of the Dark Logos, so it's not translated, but there's an excerpt that is translated. Uh, and I think if you search um, the metaphysics of pain and the radical subject, that's mm-hmm. the relevant excerpt. And it comes in the context of his study of this Dionysian history of philosophy, as I mentioned earlier. But mm-hmm. he says that he himself in the 80s found himself in the middle of uh, in a situation where he rejected everything around him. And mm-hmm. he explains that, like, you know, it wasn't like I had some ethnic or, or religious reason to be rejecting it. I was straight up Soviet and my parents were straight up Soviet. I was basically as Soviet as you can get. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow in the depth of this experience, I was totally and utterly disgusted with everything. Mm-hmm. OK, and he writes about that and he says, uh if you go have a look at that, he, that pat, those passages, he specifically describes the discovery within him of something uh, that later he correlates. Like you can see that he had this experience that he's tried so hard to make sense of that he correlates um, what emerged out of that uh, dark night for him with uh, figures from Hermeticism, from Gnosticism, and he from you know from Heidegger, and he elaborates it into his own conceptual schema using this. Notion of the radical subject, the radical subject and its double. That's another name of his book. So if you trace, like he says, okay, in his, in his Noamaki books, he says, to read a philosopher, you have to read them with like the deepest philosophical empathy. 
if you're an atheist and the philosopher talks about God and the angels, you can't just reinterpret that into your atheistic understanding. You must try to inhabit the life world of the philosopher in the same way that a cultural anthropologist through participant observation tries to bracket his self-understanding for the sake of learning about the society that he's observing. You have yeah. to do the same thing he says with philosophers and you arise from their self-understanding to their conceptual logical schema in a way that is like full of philosophical empathy. Well, if we take seriously that um, invitation and we apply it to Dugan himself, then we have to in some we have to in some way understand his search for Dionysus and his notion of the radical subject and all these other things as mm -hmm. stemming to an extent from this crucial conversion experience that he had in the 80s in Moscow when everything lost its meaning for him. Um, and that even those passages, again, they are available in not the greatest translation, but still they are available in translation in English, uh, Metaphysics of Pain and the Radical Subject. They also distinguish his path because a lot of people say, uh, OK, some people who know Dugan, they just interpret him as geopolitics. OK, that was when I came on the scene in 2011. That's when I started translating Dugan. Most of the literature was about his geopolitics, the ethnosociology and theology that was missing. OK, it's changed now. But if some people who search for him now they see that he's a traditionalist. Well, yes. in that in that writing, he distinguishes the his conversion experience into the radical subject from traditionalism. He specifically says, when everything loses its meaning for you in the way that it did for me, there are two paths you can take. You can go the road of traditionalism or you can go this other road. And I went on this other road. So if you encounter him thinking he's a traditionalist and then you read these passages or in the interview I did with him in Heidegger where he says, I used to have, you know, be Apollonian traditionalist and then I went Dionysian. Those are like key ways of distinguishing, you know, so that we can, with philosophical empathy, understand his path. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like he clearly has had and not only has he had a conversion experience, if not more than one conversion experience, he always writes about philosophy and about thinking including there's a, on 4pt.su, there's a, an entry re relatively recent called Notes on Thought, I think. He mm -hmm. treats the act of thinking at its peak as a conversion experience. You know, mm -hmm. to think at its, in its proper and fullest sense, in its philosophical sense, or in its, mo in its purest and rawest sense, is to expose yourself to transformation. You know, so that is just uh, clearly reflects an experience that he has had, if not mm -hmm. more than one. And is the key to accessing what's um, what's interesting about his works. Another key, you know, there are many locks mm -hmm. and many keys. That's just another one of them. Right. All right. So, like I said, I, I love I love talking about Dugan, but with with regard to say, for example, um, how you explain material to your own students, right? Obviously, you've you've, you've touched a lot on uh, tracing histories and. and cross-reference and different anthropological techniques, right? Yeah, I would say, like, Strauss for me, Strauss's pedagogy for me is is more important than Dugan's pedagogy in terms of how, how I would work with students. Mm -hmm. You know, so the idea is that, again, the kind of thing that I would teach when I work with students is let's mm -hmm. read a book together, whether it's Plato, whether it's Dugan. So it's very much book-focused, okay? Mm -hmm. It's book, we're reading books. So there are some classes if, if uh, you know, people have had the experience of going to a university where the syllabus will be like 30 different articles from 30 different journals, you know, like it's, you know what I'm saying? Like it's article yeah. focused. That's not my, that's not the approach that um, I follow. It's not the approach that I think um, works best or the approach that I'm best suited for. Mine is very much like, let's take a book or an essay and go through it very slowly. Okay. Very carefully with the highest degree of philosophical empathy that we can um, muster and Strauss gave me a lot of uh, 
he modeled that for me in the way that he reads these works. And I can say that actually probably what has made, um, I mean, as you can probably tell, like Strauss and Dugan are two particularly important figures for me. And yes. one of the ways that Dugan became important for me was that I read him the way that Strauss taught me to read. So Strauss yeah. said, don't be so quick to dismiss an author who doesn't seem to you like he is deep. Because mm -hmm. Strauss himself did that to Xenophon, for example. A lot of historians, as I understand, had dismissed Xenophon, who has an account. He's one of the few uh, ancient sources who has a direct account of Socrates. But mm -hmm. my understanding is nobody had really treated him as a serious thinker until Strauss taught people how to read Xenophon. And so, to so that if, if I can learn to read him as a serious thinker. So right. I did the same thing with Dugan. If, so I, can just, if I can yeah, interject well, for a second, sure, can, I ask, can I ask, can I ask, so... Um, you're very, I follow your, your, your Michael, your M. Millerman, like, Twitter, right? And you've actually gone through a lot of, like, open tweet, openly tweeted about discussions of a lot of these ideas and, you know, especially, Strauss especially, and, uh, and also Heidegger. But, um, one of the, one of the kind of questions online that's discussed a lot because, especially with the internet and, uh, more distributions of foreign authors and translations, especially nowadays, is, uh, what it like when, what is the kind of breadth of like how much, how much, like when should people stop reading, right? Is there, is there ever like a point of like over literacy in regards to taking in too much theory and what, what do thinkers and teachers think about in terms of like, um, you know, uh, picking and be, you know, economy of, of choosing your, your thinkers yeah. and how so, they advise there, to, to choose yeah. and avoid. There are know, figures, there are figures, even esteemed figures within the history of philosophy, like Nietzsche, who say there's possible to read too much, right? And sometimes you need yeah. some breathing room and sometimes you need to get away from that. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably true. And there are probably also people who you can go to if you want to be encouraged into activism and action. Mm -hmm. But my, uh, my own contribution, as best as I think I'm positioned to make it, is mm -hmm. with the side of those people who say that Theory is crucial. You know, they mm -hmm. don't, they want, and Zizek, I include that. Zizek, yeah, in it, right? yeah, it, yeah. So I, I am yeah. very much predisposed to uh, supporting those thinkers who, <clears throat> I might even say, who overemphasize the importance of theory as a counterbalance to the prevailing approach, which underemphasizes the importance of theory. So that's number one. But then you can say, okay, is it endless reading or what? Well, mm -hmm. I think that Strauss is right that life is too short to read any but the greatest books. Okay, there's something to that mm -hmm. for sure. How do you decide what the greatest books are? Well, that's an open question, right? I don't necessarily think that we should get rid of Plato in order to read some arbitrary um, Ethiopian author just because one is Western and one is Ethiopian or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So there's a canon that's worth studying and that can continue to disclose its riches to us. And, I mean, I read... As I said, like I read and encourage the reading of Dugan in the same way that Strauss encourages the reading of the other authors, which is like try to get to know them completely. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of people, I mean, again, I, I, I can't speak about 20 different subjects because I have I isolated a small universe of texts, right? Like Heidegger, even Strauss and Dugan for me are somehow in light of Heidegger because mm -hmm. both of them recognized Heidegger as the most eminent thinker of of the mm -hmm. 20th century, if not of many centuries, right? If not and, of, of and, millennia. And if know? I can so, say, when, if I can say, one of the things that I've seen in, in deciding, like how your reading has been shaped a lot, is is a very actually classical and and response and critical of classical uh, commentaries, right? That kind of that the way Dugan forms, like, kind of makes this vector, right? So there's this, there's this thing in statistics called like, linear regression, right, where you make this kind of line right out of a bunch of points, mm -hmm. and the kind of vector 
like there's there's kind of a vector that's been formed with what Dugan who Dugan cites and that who you talk about that I can see is kind of developed like how you like the kind of direction of like thinkers that you think about uh, just because if they talk about things like symbol systems you know theology you know um, you know sources of meaning you know um, like historiography of of societies and and belief systems and that kind of thing right yeah I I can say that um, when I when I was w- among Straussians, and I do mm-hmm. have an essay on this topic called uh, In Search of Devil's Advocates or something mm-hmm. along those lines, or Straussian witchcraft. When mm-hmm. I was among Straussians, I encouraged them to like invert everything they know. They would never read Zizek. I said, how could you not, right? Or they would never read something crazy. Right. And I would say, how could you not? And vice versa, in a way. That's- when I'm among Duganites, who you know don't ha- w- would think that to read Leo Strauss is like some sort of sacrilege, or to read, you know, or to spend like a month reading Hobbes or something. You know, right? That's saying? the thing. That's the thing that sucks is whenever you can't because of someone's Pardon? like, too, so whenever someone's whenever someone's too politically bent, you can't someone can't get them to read for sometimes for career reasons, you know, some sort of source or you know at least mention that they can, right? Yeah. So really, what motivates me? And again, this motivation is limited. It doesn't answer every relevant question. It doesn't study every relevant author. You know, it. Mm-hmm. it to a large extent, as, it, as I have mentioned, as you've mentioned, oh, probably overprivileges theory vis-a-vis practice and so on. But mm-hmm. my what's, what's crucial to me and what I try to convey is that there are so many fundamental questions about what is the human being and our relationship to the whole that philosophers and political philosophers have given a lot, an account of this and that most of our reading is overly constrained by um, belonging to a school. And that if we can combine depth and breadth through comparative study and through uh, various approaches in reading that I think are modeled well by Strauss, we can put our, 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 ourselves in touch and, and human, it's like a humanizing effort to try to give us access to a broader and deeper expanse of the fundamental questions. I mean, that's what at the university, like you had experts in Derrida, you had experts in Strauss or whatever, right? My, I don't consider, now this is, this is somewhat self-serving, okay, and it's probably a blind spot for me, but I don't consider my expertise in Dugan, or I don't intend it to be a narrow expertise in Dugan, because mm-hmm. I intend for Dugan to open out onto a much broader and deeper set of questions. And I believe that he does, and I believe right. that I can show that he does, you know? Right, and so I'm, glad, for the I'm glad you mentioned that, that. It's for the sake of those questions that I'm so passionate both about him and about Strauss. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's that's mainly why I was so interested in interviewing you. Uh, as far as uh, like I said, since I've been I think I've been following you for something like three years or something like that. Uh, but like I said, yeah, the the readings really bring up these different like concepts and really explain them even to way to people with uh, maybe a non not so focused or not so specialized political science or sociological background. He can bring it. He can the the language at least for me was was very easy to read. Uh, that might be a bias in, in regards to like you know how how much people can get from it, right? But um, uh, yeah, the, I I agree completely with the with with what you're saying about it opening up different like like uh, sources of, of thinking on this these kind of subjects. Uh, all right, so uh, we're gonna wrap it up soon. Uh, any is there any Anything? Do you have anything exciting in the works in your own world uh, that you uh, can either hint about or uh, are excited to get on? Or do you have any prospects for where you want your career to go in the future? That kind of thing. Yeah, as far as all of this goes, um, 
and in light of what we just said, you know, Dugan opening up onto other questions. So I have been teaching, as I mentioned, uh, seminars and, and reading groups. We did a reading group on the fourth political theory that, you know, it's a, it's the, page, the book is like 140 pages and mm-hmm. we spent 12, 12 or more hours, you know, going uh, session by session, chapter by chapter into a lot of detail. So that was really satisfying doing a seminar on Noamakia, which is very satisfying. Uh, and I'm, uh, I have a translation underway, another translation. It's Martin Heidegger and the possibility of Russian philosophy. And there too, like the question, even the question of the possibility of philosophy is interesting to me, right? So mm-hmm. what, as something that we don't take for granted, but that we actually like inquire into its preconditions and into its significance. So that's all on the Dugan side. Um, you know, I work full time outside of academia. So this is like in my spare time, uh, which I have less of than when I was in, in graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't actually know exactly what's going to be next. I, as I said, I'm pretty much blacklisted from university. I do. I am pretty glad that I have like I have students and researchers. And you sound excited. So just from your social media, you, you sound pretty excited. Just you sounds more sounds like more one opportunity is closed, but you feel more independent and more. Yeah, free for sure. I mean, you have, you, to, you have to understand, yeah. like at, even this conversation that we're having, which I'm mm-hmm. like I'm jo- enjoying a lot. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do in graduate school. I mean, mm-hmm. I turned down a lot of interviews. I turned down opportunities to go to other countries and speak because mm-hmm. I was told that basically it's like uh, head down, mouth shut, or you won't graduate. And I, right. I, just couldn't, I couldn't and, take that risk then. So I wouldn't really want to go back. Um, right. But but the great thing is that I get letters from students, like from undergraduate students, from graduate students, from professors, from researchers, from professionals. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's great. You know, people have a genuine interest in, in the work um, that I'm doing. And I consider myself like super fortunate to be able to do it. It just yeah. na- is a natural outgrowth of my interest, yeah. so it just worked out well that way. And it's not out of the question that at some point, you know, somebody will, there will be like in- invited speeches at universities and so on. But my days of putting out applications to teach at university are long gone. That's not really in the cards. One thing I'd like to do, so I mentioned I'm doing the seminars. Um, I've actually mm-hmm. talked to some other like exiled academics and yeah. uh, dissident academics and right. um, just other academics I like. Mm-hmm. about this model of teaching our seminars to students who are outside yeah. of academia. And there's been a genuine um, interest in that. So mm-hmm. I have talked to like uh, someone about teaching um, Aristotle, Hegel, you know, about teaching about Western yeah. civilization. Yeah. And that's actually, I would say, um, that's I, I will, in the cards. I will say that like, so I, I've, I've, I noticed that like talking to actual, say like a biology, a biology grad student or biology professor or, you know, philosophy student or philosophy professor, they're, they're not as like actually very interested in talking about the work because they're, they pour so much into it daily, 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 like a grind, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, I've noticed, I've noticed that like non-students generally enjoy talking more about the weird details of those subjects with people who have kind of like left it and gone into say industry, right. Or consulting. Right. Uh, so that, that just, just sounds like a lot along your lines. Yeah. Cause our, our interest in it is if we still have it, it's genuine, <laughs> right. It's deep. Right. right. Like, yeah. We could be, we could be in the middle. You know what I mean? Like anywhere else, you're not going to snuff out this mm-hmm. interest in us. Whereas someone who's going through making it so routine and so on, it can have a deadening effect, you know, and there mm-hmm. are many constraints on what you can say and what you can't say. And it's not really compatible with, I mean, there are, don't get me wrong, there are great professors. I had one myself in my first year of philosophy. I know people in the system that I respect, but this mm-hmm. idea of capturing the genuine interest that, um, that listeners have and students have and the genuine passion that like these, some dissident or marginalized or, you know, other academics have 
and putting together like some courses or seminars or reading groups that are, you know, are not led by me, but, you know, broadening, um, broadening as it were the faculty of this quasi university. Um, I like that idea and it's something that I am working towards, uh, gradually. All right. It's really cool because a lot of people in my generation are really fed up with institutions and that kind of thing, uh, mainly because of expenses and all sorts of reasons. So it's, it's really exciting, you know, just like you mentioned, you and like other people going out and trying to be like, do like do more, you know, independent publishing or, you know, contract with people and, and private teaching. So that this is, can I really just say like for yeah. the people who will be watching this or listening mm-hmm. to it, um, I am wide open to suggestions and feedback and like people's perspectives and stories and all mm-hmm. of that. So, you know, if it's something that they, that you think is interesting, there's some authors you want us to consider, yeah. you know, like all of that feedback, I definitely welcome it and uh, positive and negative. You know, if you think mm-hmm. the idea is horrible, you can tell me that too. Right. So we're going to try to, we're going to try to transcribe this interview too. And basically every author that we mentioned and every, every, probably most of the citations from the Dugan book that I have, I'll, I'll throw in there because our, our readers like to, you know, are very, very, you know, very good, like really like, you know, going in and like, you know, reading all the details and stuff. So very, really glad to bring you on, you know, about this particular subject because I know our, our listeners are going to enjoy it a lot. And, uh, you were very, uh, very good interview, uh, partner, you know, to talk these things over. So, uh, it's a lot, 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 lot that was covered. So, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've really, um, enjoyed the conversation. All right. So, uh, we're going to hang up here in a second. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to, uh, shout out before we end the call? Um, I have my website, michaelmillerman.ca, where some of the essays that I've written about Dugan and Strauss and, you know, the questions that I think are important um, are there. If anyone wants to look at that, you can also see what translations I've done um, of Dugan's and where you can get them and stuff like that. Um, But really, I just, again, want to thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Mm -hmm. listeners, you know, and your readers. And uh, yeah, like I I kind of hope, I don't know how this works, but if there's any um, discussion that comes out of it online and so on, that would be great too. Like, it's yeah, just, it's, we it's get a, good to we talk get a, to people who are genuinely mm-hmm. interested in these things. Yeah, there's there's interest. There's all sorts of really interesting networks on Twitter of of feedback to different theory. You're probably going to get a lot of criticism. Like we're probably going to get a lot of criticism for talking I, about Dugan. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, yeah, people are going to yeah, you know, people are going to respond to that. And, you know, there's going to be you know negative response to that criticism. So uh, we'll we'll let you know all about it. And uh, like I said, we'll we'll share the recording with you as well. Uh, so, uh, thank you, thank you, Michael, and, uh, thank you for everyone for listening. Um, uh, everyone have a good night or a good evening or a good morning. All right. Take care.